This is Mormon Awakenings. You can email me your questions or comments to mormonawakenings at gmail.com or you can find me on Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. So I'd like to welcome everyone today with a conversation with Zach Durr. He's based in Holiday, an attorney, family man, active member of the church. Zach is also a huge WWE fan. And believe it or not, that's going to be relevant to today's conversation. So I wanted to just throw that at you, Zach. Tell us about your WWE fixation. <laughs> so uh, I, I grew up in the uh, in the eighties, and back then it was uh, it was called WWF. Um, and I guess there was too much confusion with the uh, the World Wildlife Foundation that they uh, that they changed it eventually. But um, I, uh, when I was little, I remember they had a cartoon uh, called Hulk Hogan's Rock and Wrestlers that I would watch religiously every uh, every Saturday morning, and then I would watch uh, the actual matches, and uh, I I enjoyed it. I as a as a child, I uh, I had an older brother who gave me the inside scoop that told me that the uh, the matches were scripted. Uh, but I, I still, I Thanks still for thought it was a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so, so it was, uh, there's a whole cast of characters and kind of all these dramas and it was so over the top and outrageous that, uh, even, even as a eight or nine year old, I, I kind of knew it was that way, but I still thought it was fun. Yeah. And this was, uh, th- this, Passion was recently rekindled uh, when I watched a, a documentary on HBO about Andre the Giant, mm. and it brought back a lot of memories from childhood of, of enjoying uh, pro wrestling and, uh, and also gave me some, some interesting insights uh, into how that may apply to, to other things. Huh. Well, I, you know, I don't, um, I don't want to insult you here, but, um, and you, you may, <laughs> this may be an insult, but. I, my younger brother has Down syndrome, and he was uh-huh. a huge WWF fan, massively. Okay. <laughs> he knew all the characters. He could, you know, he, The Undertaker and Hulk Hogan, he, everybody, and he, and he just loved it. So I'm, now, again, I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to, you know, insult anybody's intelligence here, but, but uh, he was a huge fan. So we, we were somewhat, <laughs> we, we saw a little bit of it growing up, too, and it is funny about older brothers. They always want to dispel uh, the fantasies of their younger brothers for some reason. I don't. I don't know why that is, but uh, it seems like this has been going on since the dawn of time. So that's un. That's yeah, they, cruel. they see it as their duty. <laughs> they see it as their duty. So, but yeah. you have an interesting theory—not theory, but you have a uh, sort of a how can I put it—a satirical or a humorous, um, but also s- somewhat based in truth. Uh, view of how WWF is is uh, a bit of a parable about life, about uh, ch- religion, about stagecraft, and I wonder if you wouldn't mind going into that a little more. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, with uh, when I watched this this documentary on HBO, one of the things that stood out to me was how massive of a man Andre the Giant actually was. So, so you see pictures of him. Uh, there's a famous picture of him holding a can of beer, and it looks like 
he's he's holding a toy or a miniature. Huge mm. hands, huge body, um, huge strength. He uh, he actually had a form. He, he had a disease where he just never stopped growing as a teenager. So he just got to be huge as a as a teenager. And uh, there there's some also some some kind of legendary stories about him eating five lobsters and five steaks in one sitting. Uh, you know, his, his drinking was, was legendary. He'd drink cases of wine. So that... And he that, was, in fact, strong. Like, he was also physically strong. He wasn't weak, right? I mean, he was you know, he, Yeah, he was powerful. incredibly, incredibly strong and powerful. And uh, the, one of the interesting things in the documentary is that even though the matches were scripted, he had people that he felt had insulted him or were not giving him the proper respect. And he would actually, uh, you know, really punch and really, really hurt them in the ring. And, and a lot of them got, got injured and, and were pretty scared by just his, his massive strength. So he, he'd but go off script a little and, he'd, he'd and actually off. throw real yeah. punches. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's there's one story of a of a wrestler just getting done with the match, grabbing his things and, and running because he thought that, that Andre was gonna gonna hurt him some more after the match. <laughs> so so he he was not a a man to be be trifled with. But uh, the the interesting thing that that came to mind was he he was billed as seven foot four. And I, I believe 500, uh, 20, 25 pounds or something like that. And in the documentary, the, the Vince McMahon, who was kind of the head of wrestling said, you know, I know he was, he was seven feet or over and about 500 pounds, but you know, we, we exaggerated a little bit. Mm. He, Andre, the, the giant was from a, a kind of a suburb of Paris and he was billed as, you know, coming from Grenoble and the French Alps, all these things that were were what uh, we call in the law uh, puffery, mm, or yes. um, not not material misrepresentation, but but things that were maybe a little bit of exaggeration, allowable and, and math- advertising, right? Allowable, yeah, it, uh, it, yeah, showmanship, uh, that that kind of thing. Um, and the, the most interesting thing was, uh, at, at a certain point, his, his body couldn't handle the, uh, his mass. And so his knees and his back started to give way. And there was, uh, an interesting, uh, description of, it was WrestleMania three up to that point, Andre the Giant had been had been billed as being undefeated. He'd never lost a match. And he was going to face this up-and-comer named Hulk Hogan. And in the script, it was a means for them to let Andre gracefully bow out of the limelight and pass the torch to Hulk Hogan mm. and kind of have it be Andre's swan song. And he he couldn't do a lot in the ring. He didn't have the same uh, physical capacity, and so they had essentially scripted this whole match. And Hulk Hogan played the whole thing in a way that allowed Andre to 
do things like these squeezing bear hugs and, and other moves that, that wouldn't hurt his, his back. Mm. And so the, there was this whole scripted thing that was kind of played out. And uh, there was, there's kind of this big finale where Hulk Hogan body slammed Andre the giant and it was over. Uh, the in, incidentally, the, the other funny thing was that it was billed as the first time these two had, had faced each other. And prior to WWF becoming what it was, wrestling was more regional and it was on local uh, syndicated television. And there were also kind of matches. And so Hulk Hogan and Andre the giant had actually fought dozens of times, even Uh, under different names in the the past, but that was all kind of washed away for the, for the spectacle. Hmm. So you, you draw some, uh, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I cut you off there. No, no, go ahead. You, you were going to say. That, I was going to say. So, my... so you, you draw some some inferences, not inferences, but some some metaphorical uh, uh, applications, I guess, to this uh, very interesting story. Um, it's always interesting to hear. Just as an aside, you know, Andre the Giant's swan song. <laughs> you know, a, a wrestler, <laughs> a stage wrestler, having a you know. A, a pinnacle of his artistic career. That's an interesting juxtaposition <laughs> in my mind. But, um, but, but you, but you draw some interesting metaphorical uh, lessons, applications, and view this kind of as a as a parable of sorts. Um, so maybe you know, take us take us through that thought process a little bit. Sure. So, in in my in my recent study and, and journey, and I don't know if you would call it a, an awakening moment, but uh, as, as so many people do, I've spent a good part of my 30s uh, looking at things like church history, thinking about my relationship with the church, and kind of evaluating my own spirituality and what, what I want to have my relationship with the, with the church be going mm-hmm. forward. And I think one, one analogy that I wanted to, that, that stood out to me was that I, I feel like there was something about WWF wrestling when I was young that, that brought me in. There was, there was a magic, there was a charisma about it. Mm. And that was rekindled when I watched this, this documentary. I, I feel like with the church, um, you know, and, and it's, for me, kind of the importance uh, in my life, the church is vastly more important than than WWF wrestling. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I think it's okay. Just just before you even get going too far, I think it's okay to draw, um, you know, le- lessons from something that on the surface seems. I mean, some people may call it even inane, like WWF. It's okay to draw uh, inferences and lessons from from everything. I mean, I really believe that. I think it's all kind of out there for, yeah, I mean, it's, it's entertainment at one level, but it's also educational at another level, you know? I mean, even though it seems silly, I think it's all kind of, it all, you know, our collective experience kind of adds up to something educational and enlightening. Anyways, I'm, I'm digressing. Sorry. All, all all the meat is good, right? All the meat is good. That's exactly right. All the meat (laughs) is good. Yeah. So with the with the church, I feel like there is there's a magic there. There's a, a something charismatic that draws people in, and it's interesting to hear 
even the experiences of people who are pretty antagonistic and bitter. I think of the interview that John DeLynn did with uh, Mike Norton, who I, I don't know if there's anybody who would be more bitter and antagonistic towards the church than, than him. Yeah. It was interesting to hear him talk about some of the things that he appreciated about the church, some of the, the magic, some of the, the things that, that kind of drew him in and, and still had him a, a little bit curious and things that he missed mm. about his relationship with the church. So I've, I've come up with, with a list. It's not uh, exhaustive, but, but it's just kind of a few bullet points of things that I, I think that, you know, across the board, I would argue are good things uh, about the church. Mm. The, the first one is that it uh, provides a, a basis for spirituality or a, a relationship with God. And so it's mm. a, a means for people to, to draw close to God and, and experience spirituality. Um, I think it also pushes us to examine our lives and encourages improvement across mm. all areas of life, whether this be, you know, even, even temporal things, the church has great programs for people who are out of work, uh, people who struggle with addictions, welfare programs uh, across the board. There's, there's kind of this expectation and process in place for people to continually improve. There are opportunities to serve. So people have callings where they, they serve in a variety of capacities. I, I think one of the wonderful things is that uh, as people age, there people generally in America and I think around the world get really lonely and don't have uh, very much meaning in their lives. And mm. I think people in the church have you know chances to go on missions, lots of community, lots of friends, lots of association possibilities, which I think is incredible. Yep. There, there's also the access to sacramental ordinances, whether that be, you know, the baptism, temple, things like that. And then I also think it's important that those are uh, also become family and social events. When a child is baptized, it's, it's a family event. Everybody is there. It's a special day for the child. When a, when a child leaves on a mission or gets married in the temple, those are, those are important events. Yeah. And I, I think another big one is just the, the community. You have award people that, that you can rely on. You socialize with them. You work side by side, You're cleaning the chapel. There, there are all kinds of chances to have, have a community. And I think that so many people in this day and age are really hungry for, for some kind of community. And we offer a community like nobody else. Yep. But at the, uh, at the same time, so that, so there's all these great things. And then uh, there's, there, there's kind of a give and take or a social contract with, with any uh, relationship or association. Right. So if you, yep. If you go shopping, there's there's kind of a social contract in what they're giving you and what you're giving them, what you're giving them, and with the uh, with the church, I've kind of boiled that down to there's a some level of conformity that that is expected, 
as well as some kind of some institutional loyalty. And so mm-hmm. with conformity, that can be everything from, you know, showing up at church to be part of the church meeting to kind of a tacit expectation that people will, will dress a certain way. There are mm. also behavioral norms that are important. Uh, things like the, the word of wisdom, um, the, you know, these, these standards or outward behavioral manifestations. And then there's also an expectation that, that people will be, be loyal to the, the church. And if people get too outside of those, either of those things, then their, uh, then their access to a lot of these, these benefits starts to, to wane. So if somebody mm. is not uh, keeping the behavioral norms, then they might not get a temple recommend and not, might not be able to go to a child's uh, wedding or something like that. Yep. But those are all pretty, pretty obvious things, but that's kind of my, my, my groundwork, but the, where, where it comes into the, the WWF analogy is that as you, as you get older, you, you kind of pick things up and, and maybe study church history, you become aware of a lot of cognitive dissonance that, that I would analogize to kind of maybe opening your eyes to some of the things about WWF wrestling that are scripted. The, the fake punches, the the puffery about the the stats, and yeah. you have to to make a decision if if the the magic of it and your enjoyment of it outweighs and, and kind of gets you past those those areas of cognitive dissonance. Mm. So so if if somebody's at WrestleMania and they're, they're probably aware that it's, that it's scripted, that Mm. the the punches aren't real, but there's still enough enjoyment there and enough magic that they're, they're willing to, to look past that and enjoy, enjoy it for what it is. Mm. So I'm, I'm, what I'm not trying to say is that, you know, the, the church is as fake as pro wrestling, uh, but but what what I am trying to say is that there's there are some areas of cognitive dissonance that at some point you have to decide if you're if you're willing to overlook just to enjoy all the benefits. Yeah. Well, I, I think you raise a very interesting point. Uh, not not well, two points. One is, um, you know, the notion that you can have a make a make a cognitive connection or come to some sort of profound conclusion while thinking about something that seems as worldly as and it and as you know not based in reality uh, as world as WWF that's a very interesting phenomenon and i th- i think it's interest you know we i think we tend to discount the epiphanies that we have because they may happen in in untraditional or unexpected ways you know because I, there's been times where you're you, you can be watching a movie or be at a concert, or witnessing something, and and you'll have some sort of, um, you know, new bright understanding about something, and and I, so I I guess I I do want to encourage people to you know when you have when you have a spiritual insight or an epiphany of some sort, 
even in the strangest of contexts, that those are things worth paying attention to. And so that's one of the reasons I really want to talk about the WWF with you is because it is, <laughs> it is such an atypical um, source of inspiration. Um, but I think, you know, I have a theory, and I've shared this with, with some friends and some family members, that I think that God is raining down salvation all around us in whatever milieu we're in. And, and it's, it's always there if you're looking for it, which is, which is I think, a little bit of a, an unusual view, not, not typically held. Because I think we typically think, at least inside our community, that you have to be in the temple or at a sacred meeting or, you know, in, in the midst of, you know, contemplative prayer to receive great insights. And I think all those practices are awesome, but sometimes they facilitate great insights that come, great insights that come when you're driving down the street or you're in a traffic jam or, you're, you know, you're listening to, to the baseball game or WWF or whatever it is. Um, so I don't want di- to, so I don't discount any of these sort of conclusions that, that are drawn in wherever you are. That's the first point. But, but then the second point is, um, you know, this idea of, of stagecraft or, or presentation, something that's scripted um, and, and can convince and tricks us into thinking it's, it's real or uh, authentic or, you know, organic, I guess, is an even a better adjective. You know, because WWF, for example, is not, these are not organic fights they're not even like boxing where it's a scheduled fight, but the fight itself is a, you know, it's two guys really fighting. It's not a scripted fight. You know, the whole thing is scripted. You know, they, the, the, the ring, the venue, the, the, the records, when they enter the stage, there's a big, or the ring, there's a big script about who's going to win and how and what are the moves going to be in the order of the moves, and, and they got to do it just right. And, and, you know, so it's not a, it's not a real fight. It's a, it's completely scripted. The outcome's known ahead of time, et cetera, et cetera. It's not. But if you're a kid, when you're a kid, eight, seven, eight, nine years old, you think, "Whoa, this isn't. You know, this is a real thing," and you're really excited. And it's disappointing when you learn that it's staged. And so stagecraft, you know, creeps into religious life, certainly into into our church life. Um, you know, I remember as a kid going to the to the tabernacle for the first time. And it was, you know, this, this small kind of intimate thing and seeing a general conference there and, oh, so incredible. And yet there was something not really staged about it, but it was an organized event. It was, you know, the, the talks were prepared, yet it was intimate. And now, you know, you go to the conference center, there's 25,000 people there. The stagecraft is on, is on a whole nother level, just as an example and, and uh, you know, it's, it's something that we use for sure inside our community. And, and all, you know, all religions have a certain amount of straight stagecraft, of, of ritual, of ceremony, you know, of pomp and circumstance, which lends, I think, which lends an air of authenticity or reliability um, to, the, to the participation in the event, you know, it, and and it's not un you know the ends of that stagecraft are not unintentional or vague by the people putting on the show. I mean they want you to feel, um, you know, to have an emotional reaction, to have a you know they're trying to elicit maybe a spiritual reaction. Maybe their intents are good, but they're but it's an attempt to get you to think a certain way, to have a certain reaction, to feel something. Um, and 
and as you mentioned, it's it's disappointing or it can be disillusioning. I think you were saying this. It can be disillusioning when you kind of wake up to to the fact that you know much of not much I don't know how much but there's a portion of what we do that's that's kind of a scripted show am, am I characterizing that right yeah exactly and I I think that um you know the even even not to to denigrate uh sacred ritual but I think any any kind of religious ritual part of what makes it meaningful is some element of stagecraft and mm and ceremony that, and I think that, you know, with the, with what we do in the temple, um, you know, that's, that's part of what makes it powerful is, is that it is, uh, you know, there's a drama, there's ceremony, um, and, and kind of a, a bit of pageantry. And that's kind of part of the, what, what makes it a powerful experience. Mm. Well, can, can you talk a little bit more about the, you know, what you found upsetting or what, you know, this, this, this process of, um, or this, this weighing of whether, uh, accepting or, um, I think you, I think you termed it dealing with the stagecraft is, is worth the, is worth the cost. Is that, am I not quite, not quite sure. saying that, but, but are the, sure, you know, the, sure. the, the, you know <laughs> is, is it worth putting up with that to partake of the benefits rather? Is that, is that a is that a cost that one can deal with? How do you, how do you sure. think about those things? Sure, and yeah, I have a, a few examples. Um, one one for me would be uh, the the word of wisdom, and I, I think that you know people can agree that for for me, what I boil it down to is I, I think that it would be it would be hard to have a a close relationship with God or to be a spiritually mature person and be happy if you were an alcoholic or addicted to drugs. And yeah. so I think the, the, the purpose is to, to steer us away from that. But I, I think with kind of the stagecraft example, what, what we say that the word of wisdom is all about is not what it, it says in the scriptures or mm. what it is historically been all about. Um, if you read DNC 89, the, the beginning says that it's not a commandment. It's right. a, it, it's a principle with a promise. Uh, there's, there are things in there that we ignore such as the, the recommendation to that, that mild drinks made of barley are, are fine, which means beer and has always yeah. been interpreted as beer. Um, there's, there's also a pretty strong, uh, requirement to eat meat sparingly, which, which we, we ignore. Mm. And, uh, historically, uh, you know, if you look at, at history, Joseph Smith kind of treated it as a suggestion. He regularly drank tea and, and sometimes alcohol, same thing with Brigham Young. And it really became something that became important, uh, when we, abandoned polygamy and we're kind of looking to redefine ourselves yeah. that, that kind of turn of the century with Joseph F. Smith and then Heber J. Grant. Um, and, and we've kind of taken this, this hard line and made it to be one of those, those, re, you know, uh, conformity loyalty things. Right. Um, and so, so I think for me, I, you know, I can really, 
I can really get behind the idea that you can avoid a lot of trouble by completely avoiding alcohol or avoiding drugs. Uh, I think it's hard to make the same kind of argument with tea and coffee, but, yeah. but it's just one of those things that I've accepted as, or meat, you know, this is an, or meat. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I've kind of, you know, accepted it and said, you know, there, there are problems with it, but, but this is, is important to the institution. It's a sign of conformity and loyalty. And I'm okay with, with that, uh, cognitive dissonance. Mm. Yeah. You know, as I listen to you, it, it brings up a couple thoughts. One is, um, I think we go through a period of time where we're doing something like wordoism, for example, or we're not doing something. And we ask ourselves the question, does God really care if I have a barley drink, you know, AKA a beer, you know, does God care? And as you mentioned, you know, we, we have sort of, uh, picked the, the things that we like about the wordoism, you know, but does God really care if I am eating, you know, the red meat diet, the paleo diet of red meat and vegetables, you know, and which on one level seems, you know, all the doctors are telling us that's very healthy, but on the other, it's, it doesn't seem to comport with the word of wisdom's strictures, right? I mean, it, eat meat sparingly is not have a paleo diet. Um, sure. Sure. Uh, so, but, but some people say that's a very healthy way to live and there's evolutionary data that supports that. And, 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 you know, but my point is that it's, you know, we go through, I think it's unavoidable for us to go through a period of time where we ask, does God care if I'm doing this stuff? And, and, uh, I think we need a good, a good answer. And I think you're hitting upon uh, what is a good and yet complex answer. And the answer may be in isolation, God probably doesn't care. You know, if you're on Gilligan's Island, um, with, four or five people and I don't think God cares how much meat you eat or, you know, how much beer, or even if you're drinking a lot of beer. I mean, I, I, I don't think in isolation it matters, but, but I do think you really hit on something which is profound, which is you do it for the group and you do it out of respect for the norms of the group. And, and I think we feel like in our community that we're, you know, that we're bullied into doing that or that we're, you know, we're forced because of social pressure, and we view we view making those type of sacrifices for the group as a as a bad thing. But you know, it's it's really comforting, uh, particularly if you're in a state of of despair, or your life is very unstructured and in disarray, or you're full of fear. It's very comforting to know you can go to a place where everybody has kind of agreed to the rules. And they're all going to kind of do what they say, and it's predictable. And I think that predictability is a source of great comfort for for many, many people. And and my own view is it's just kind of it's just kind of rude and selfish to go in and and scream about how stupid everyone is for obeying these arbitrary rules that God really, in isolation, doesn't care if you keep or not. You know what I mean? It's it's sort of a yeah, it it it's kind of like what your little your older brother did to you when he comes in and says, you know, this this whole uh, worldwide WWF stuff, this is all garbage. I mean, th- that is, and I know he was probably a kid when he did it, but it's but it's <laughs> at its at its most fundamental, it's a cruel 
and not kind thing to do. And he didn't do it out of love or charity. He didn't do it so that you could have a, a comfortable transition <laughs> to, you know, <laughs> of, of enlightenment, you know, towards living in the dark towards enlightenment. It was, it was a malicious, cruel um, thing, and maybe his motives were to make you feel stupid. I mean, we've all, we've all done that to our siblings, and our siblings have done that to, to us, and, you know, everyone's had this. It's not an uncommon experience. But if you think about it, it's not a kind thing to do. And so I think there really is something um, quite beautiful when when any individual says, you know, I know this is important to Sister Jones that, you know, or or even the unnamed person. You know, it's important to the group that we all kind of play by the rules and it's it's safe and it's charitable and I don't need to go around like the world's biggest, you know, smarty pants telling everyone how, how dumb they are. That's... I just don't think that's what church is about or, or any kind of group trying to live charitably. Do you know what I mean? And so, so I, I think yeah, the latter is, I think the latter is really important. You know, the latter is really, you know, and, and, um, I, you know, I guess there's an analog there too, which is, you know, people say, well, I'll just do it on my private time. And, you know, I, I guess, you know, I guess you can live a double life and get away with it and you, you know, you you can, but but then but then that creates I think more cognitive dissonance and and there's a there's a certain kind of order and you know internal authenticity that that you lack when you do that. So there's something nice, but I, I cut you off. You were going to say something. No, I I think I think you make great you you make great points, and I I think that uh, I I think that there is you know with something like the word of wisdom there is some. Um, there is some personal interpretation. Uh, for for example, I have a good friend who who is an LDS that went to BYU Law School, and she loved to drink coffee, and was was wondering if she could drink decaffeinated coffee while she was at BYU Law School, and and she reached out to me. And, and I, um, I knew some, some faculty members there, talked to them and, and, and really tried to, to get a clear answer. And I could never get uh, a clear answer on that. Yeah. And, and she was incredibly frustrated, you know, saying, why can't somebody just tell me? And, and I think that's the, the reason is because that's one of those areas that, that brings up a lot of questions that, yeah. that essentially kind of the answer is don't ask us just you know, either, either do it or don't do it. And was it, was this in regards to, she had to get an ecclesiastical endorsement, even as a non-member to attend BYU. Even as a non-member. Yeah. And she had to abide by the the honor code standards. Yeah. And so, so she was trying to get kind of a technical ruling and, and that was, was an area people didn't want to go because I think it just, it brings up too many questions. Right. So, so I think, yeah, but I, I think you, you raise a, a great point of, you know, you, you do it for the group and there's something very comforting. Um, and, and I think also if you've, you know, been in an area, uh, when I was on my mission, or if you live in an area with a lot of people who are new to the, new to the church, um, that there is something comforting and, and charitable about, uh, you know, accepting somebody's even, even if somebody's maybe overzealous or, um, mm. kind of is a little bit off in their interpretation, 
be, being charitable with them and, you know, kind of putting your arm around them and making them feel like they're, like they're part of the group as they're learning. If that yeah. makes any sense. No, absolutely. And I, I was going to, you know, it, it kind of talks about the flip side uh, of all of this, which is, um, you know, th- there are going to be people who try as they might are unwilling to c- conform at least at a level that the majority is going to find acceptable. You know, for example, there's this woman in, in my ward. I mean, she had been in the ward, I don't know, 15 years. She'd raised her boy in the, in the ward. And then she was getting ready to move. And she, on her last Sunday, she got up and talked about how she could never quit smoking. She was addicted to smoking and how embarrassing it was. It kept her away from the church, um, you know, because she knew she smelled like smoke. And so it has really affected her. And and I, I remember listening to this thinking, well, this is really terrible because, of course, we would judge someone who came to sacrament meeting, you know, smelling like an ashtray. We just would. And, and that's kind of sad. You know, so the flip side of this is also true. You know, there, there will be people, it's, it's also a great act of charity when people, you know, can't or are incrementally conforming or, um, you know, that, that, we, that we accept them. Um, and, I, you know, it's all kind of this big, this big thing, you know, and sometimes you're in the position where, where you're, you know, you're, you're trying to keep rules that maybe you think are dumb because you, you know, you're trying to, you're trying to get along and sometimes you're accepting people who, who are too zealot, too full of, too full of zealotry. Um, and then you're accepting people who just can't do it, you know, and it, it all kind of boils down, I think to, you know, as, as we walk the path, I think we, we become, um, you know, we, our, our love for others, rises to the surface that becomes the more important guiding principle um but I, but i think you know we start somewhere and we start doing something um and you know it, it seems like every faith tradition has you know a bunch of rules that people gotta keep and every group's gotta you know we gotta organize around something so i guess i see it as somewhat of an uh, you know uh, at a high level it's kind of a a common problem of just living in tribes and groups and families and churches or corporations, you know, whatever it is. Exactly. And I, I think there are, uh, a lot of people are surprised to learn that there are some, some policies in place that are surprisingly charitable. One example would be if, uh, you know, if there's a father who maybe has a, a struggle with some of the things in the word of wisdom or uh, pornography or something like that, even if they don't have a temple recommend, generally, I think it's it's up to some discretion of the the leaders, but generally they'd be allowed to to bless their baby or baptize their child. And I think that's an example of, you know, technically most people would say, well, no, you would need to be keeping all these things to be worthy to participate in that ordinance. But there's kind of a tacit implication, hey, we know this is important. We want yeah. you to be part of the group and we're, we're willing to work with you and, and give you a little bit of leeway on these things. Mm. Yeah. And it, and it, 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 it raises an interesting issue too, which is, um, you know, the, the, the worthiness idea, um, has always been a curious one to me and, and how we, you know, quote unquote, enforce these sort of things and what the real role of them is. Cause you mentioned earlier that you think it would be difficult to have, 
spiritual communion with you know with God with the spirit if you're an alcoholic or you're in, you're in a constant state of inebriation or you're you know you're high all the time and I think that's right I think that's a true principle being you know if you're if you're there are certain things that are damaging destructive that are roadblock that represent roadblocks certain uh, it's not just behavior by the way it's not just you know, drinking or smoking or stealing. I mean, it's also, you know, certain mental attitudes, certain, um, and, and there's a process of, of noticing and respecting these, these dangers and these roadblocks and then avoiding them and not engaging them or replacing them with something higher. I mean, I think that that's just a, a fact of life and you just can't get, um, it's hard to it's hard to feel like you're growing spiritually and growing in an eternal sense and yet be engaged in things that are fundamentally destructive having said having said that i think we do as a community we go crazy with um with worth, worthiness as an end unto itself you know like this is like the goal is to get the temple recommend and and it's it really i think it's it easily trips us up because it's it's not like filling out a form or, you know, getting all the credits you need to graduate. Yet at the same time, you know, doing certain things is is detrimental uh, to you, to your health, to your spiritual health, to your to your ability to perceive things. And and there is a process of just disciplining your yourself, disciplining your ego, and putting it in its right place. And letting it do the job it's supposed to do, but not hijack you all the time, or you know, or dis- disciplining your your passions. And everyone's, you know, as much as God will talk to us and provide miracles and and help us and love us, it's hard, I think, to perceive certain things if you just don't, you know, if you just don't avoid the dangers of life. And I think we get confused with that. Con- we confuse that concept with this idea of worthiness as an end unto itself. You know, because worthiness is not an end unto, unto itself. It's supposed to, you know, free us in a way. Um, and, you know, we end up beating ourselves up that we're not complying adequately enough when really, you know, we, we should view it as a spectrum and we're, we're growing or we're not. Does that make sense? That, that does. And, and I, uh, you know, I heard, I heard somebody make a, a good point that uh, in, in the Temple Recommend interview questions, um, when, when you're asked if you feel worthy to enter the temple, everybody's answer should be no, um, you know, because we all have things, whether it's a, a mental state of, of being angry or, or judgmental or, you know, some kind of behavior thing that we put more emphasis on that, you know, none yeah. of us, none yeah. of us are, are worthy uh, before God. And, and we have to, you yeah. know, we're, we're all uh, given some, some grace to, to accept our, our weaknesses. Mm. Hmm. Well, and is there anything else you want to throw out about the WWF or any other, any other <laughs> stage craft related issues? <laughs> I think, I think you we've know, had this, a good, is, good conversation. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun and, and I, you know, it's uh, kind of an outrageous analogy, but it's, it's been fun. And I, I think you, uh, you make a good point that we can find, find things that are applicable in, in all areas of life. And, uh, I, I also like what you, what you said that 
we we often think of God finding God in places other than the the day to day, and mm. I, I think there is you know something to be said for having special times, special places set aside apart from the day to day to help us maybe you know become even closer to God. But I I think that's a beautiful principle that that God can be found in in the in the day to day in the you know in 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 kind of what's all around us uh can can bring us closer to god i i i thank you and i i agree that that you know some of the most interesting experiences and really most life-changing have come in very unexpected ways for me i i will say this though i i do think that the 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 daily mundane you know unexpected experiences do come more often if you're all, if you also have a good habit of of seeking of study you know of of meditation prayer you know if there's you know i think we need time where we are trying to develop or exercise or improve strengthen our spiritual gifts whatever whatever those are and you know, but I often, you know, I often will, you know, have strike, you know, um, uh, be struck with inspiration outside of those practices. I mean, sometimes I'll get inspiration when I'm when I'm, you know, praying and studying, and but but I feel like, you know, the the really the really efficacious, useful stuff for me comes, you know, I'm driving in the car, I'm in the shower, I'm you know on a run or. You know, I'm watching watching the WWF or you know watching some movie. You know, there's there's it's it's when I'm um, not really thinking about the problem, um, it, but it's percolating in the, in the background. But I think we need you know I think we need both. I, I don't think you know I think it's easy for folks to say, well, I, I just you know I'm not gonna I'm not gonna have any sort of spiritual practice because you know I'll get everything by you know watching television or or you know going to the ball game or whatever else. And and I, I don't think you I don't think it works that way. Just want to make that point. Yeah, I yeah, I agree. Well, Zach, you you have been awesome. We have been speaking for coming up on an hour. I try to keep our uh, I try to keep the uh, podcast underneath an hour. And so, you know, if if there's anything you want to close with, now may be the good a good time. Um, I've really appreciated you coming on. You've been awesome. You know, it's it's really interesting to hear the views of others, see how other people make sense of the world. Um, you know have other people share what are, I think, awakening experiences. I, I read a quote somewhere that said, there are no teachers in life. There are just people that help you awaken. You know, And for me, that means just realize. Realize what is what. And we're constantly awakening. We're constantly just getting a more accurate view of what is. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I appreciate that. And I, I agree that, that you know, that's, that's kind of the, the process. And I think for me like I said before, one of my, my big awakenings is I, I think when I, when I speak with, um, people, friends, family members who, who have, have kind of become turned off or decided to step away from the, the church for whatever reason, I, I generally would agree with a lot of their, their issues, concerns, criticisms. But I think for me, um, that, that there's enough, enough good and enough benefit there mm. for me to, to be willing to overlook some of those things and, and to accept 
uh, some things for for what they are, like we talked about with the, the word of wisdom, and and seeing that some of it is a little bit arbitrary, but also seeing that you know some of it is very wise and and will keep us away from from problems. And I think if we can have a kind of a bigger picture perspective with a lot of these things, um, maybe it would would save us some of the 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 anger or disappointment that that a lot of people tend to feel. Yeah. Well, perspective is important and, you know, getting, getting new and different perspective is, is critical. You know, it's hard to look at the same thing from the same vantage point. And, and, you know, the more that we can look at things from different angles and think of different reasons, I think the better served we are. Well, you've been awesome, Zach, for coming on. I, I really appreciate it. And, um, Oh yeah, well, it's, it's been an honor and, and I, I appreciate you, uh, indulging this uh this crazy analogy and <laughs> it's, it's been a lot of fun <laughs> it has been fun so thanks again zach well zach may not have gone on too long but i certainly have hope you found something interesting here today please do email me your questions and comments to mormonawakenings at gmail.com or find me at facebook at mormon awakenings or jack Nanik. until next time